Can, you can't hear my fridge. Welcome to A Different World, the fourth season of Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jigade. And I'm Anna Ida. This season, we ask curator Maya Rudovska to supply us with a handful of wise people. In each episode, you will hear us talking with artists and curators based in either the Baltics or New Orleans. Welcome to Ask Adelaide and Anna. Uh, we are so happy to see you on the screen. Because you come with like a, a specific type of knowledge and experience with what you do. Yeah, so my name is Kaspers Groshevs, and I'm from Riga. And I'm an artist, and I also run a space. Um, I found it in 2014 together with another artist, Eva Kraula Kuna. Uh, I'm in my uh, hallway in my apartment. Uh, where are you? I'm on my bed. Oh, classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my girlfriend is gaming in the other room, so this is the only quiet spot. <laughs> yeah, I'm at my desk in Tulsa in my apartment. We have some questions we want to talk about, but uh, first we figured just to, it would be cool to hear what, if you could mention two things that have changed during the pandemic in your life. Oh yeah. What has changed in my life during the pandemic? You have two things. You can think of two things. Oh, two things. Um, um, I don't know. I guess one thing was that I was kind of forced to step out of the usual ways and think of other, maybe more inventive or maybe not, but just like other ways how to survive in, like it kind of the COVID time happened when my financial situation completely changed. So it also kind of forced me to work a bit more maybe on my own practice and and also try to see some commercial aspect of, of that, which I didn't do before, which like never interested me before. And then suddenly this kind of COVID gave me a little bit of a kick to maybe, yeah, figure my relationship with that aspect and the other thing i don't know <sighs> smoking too much weed i guess i guess before that i guess it wasn't so crazy um that's interesting what you say because i mean an ideal in an ideal world i guess artists don't need to in our fantasy world, we don't need to think about finances or selling work or any kind of like monetizing of what we do because we just like doing it. Um, so that's an interesting development. Yeah. I mean, all the things that kind of brought me joy doing them, also organizing 427 gallery program in Riga. And at, at, at some point it just like, we also didn't get funding for the gallery that specific point of time when COVID started so also that thing it was just kind of I don't know I realized that I love doing those things that I do I just need to think a little bit better of how I can sustain myself doing them how I can continue doing what I like and what I love and yeah just 
not 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 take up also too much things that are maybe not so much related to my practice or the things that I like doing. It sounds like um kind of trans translatable like into the different art scenes. Yeah, of course. I mean, like Latvian situation, I guess, or like Baltic situation. I I don't. Okay, I don't want to generalize, but Latvian situation for artists is kind of strange. You don't get so much state support. Like this this year, actually, I got lucky. I got some kind of like funding for whole year, which is like a new thing. We can also say something that has changed. Um, I could also just think of one actually right now. Um, but I think I'm less more relaxed with social media or online presence, probably because there's been like the digital stuff has just been like. A massive pain in the ass, which has been growing, and so somehow now I feel more relaxed than before about it. What do you mean, and like in terms of like looking, I, looking? I guess it was like an overload, you know, like I'm like I can't stand this. Yeah. And before the pandemic, it was just like too much, but I didn't really have like a <laughs> gutter like oh I hate this. <laughs> yeah, that's also a thing I think that has changed kind of my relationship to social media. I don't know. Yeah, Instagram used to that's at like right before pandemic. Like, inst I couldn't open Instagram because it just gave me anxiety. And now maybe yeah, it's like I yeah, maybe there's a little bit more kind of I don't know. You're, you're kind of getting getting used with this kind of information overload, and you're just looking for things that, might, but every now and then it still gives me anxiety. Very, <laughs> yeah. very <Same>. anxious social, <laughs> yeah. social network. I always think, oh, I'm gonna leave Instagram someday, because um, I left Facebook. It was supposed to be just for a year in 2011, but now it's been 10 years that I've been haven't been on Facebook. Um, which, like, a lot of times people are like, how do you survive? Because it, it's like one of these things that you feel like you have to have because there's certain things that are connected to it. Like that's where people are sharing information, or that's where people are listing apartments, or you know, just things that you need in your life that people have come to rely on it. And remember when there was that like blackout where Facebook, what was it? Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram were Instagram, working. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then you really saw like some people, I realized that's the only way I communicate with them. So then I'm like, Oh, I don't have their phone number. I can't write them. In in that occasion, I was very happy to have Twitter. I was actually like getting back on Facebook in order to like uh, share with this season to some to some people because uh, I had been off for a year but then I realized I w I'm totally out of every algorithm on Facebook like I don't see stuff and people don't see my stuff and I was like oh maybe I can just like ghost this again <laughs> <laughs> it's like throwing yeah. it into an abyss no one's gonna see it <laughs> I think it actually would be healthier for everyone if everyone just started kind of even people who are on Facebook they started thinking that maybe they're don't have to be there and kind of prepare for the because I think it's really gonna disappear or to either change its form just I don't know kind of hard to predict but but I have a feeling that like Facebook we don't need it really any it anymore really that's good like <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm still on it and I use it, you know, to I guess the only thing that I really like on it is this event thing. 
that you know you can kind of but then again like i think it's also some also like art venues or organizations are again emphasizing more like mailing lists and stuff like that because also the the social media yeah it's never you know it's never really that stable and that reliable as it might seem so i I I also like this kind of idea of maybe really going back to more like newsletters, newsletter type of format, which is also kind of, it allows you to do a lot more with how it looks, how it sounds, how you, you know, how you deliver it. Yeah. And you can design it the way that you want to. It doesn't have to fit into the parameters of some application, someone invented in california yeah because like facebook like i used to use these like glitchy things on facebook that would show up in event and then the event looks a bit more strange at least within these you know very sterile format and then they even removed that and now there's very little you can customize you can only you know use text and then maybe like too many numbers or too too many like x's or whatever but it's, but it's kind of like it's very limited now in terms of what 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 you can bring in from outside yeah it's been more than seven years over the time we have done i think yeah really more than 50 shows in these seven years alongside with like some events or something outside of gallery and all the like everything that's around it and uh, so is it was only now you got state support no no it's like it's like on and off like sometimes we get it sometimes we don't because um yeah there's only one kind of state funding option well you can also get municipal money but it's a very small amount usually and there's only one kind of the state funding and sometimes either the committee the jury who evaluate these proposals either you know it's like bad fit or let's say someone like me with artist run space that's kind of a bit more experimental and a bit less institutional and you know understandable <laughs> so at, at times it has been that just it's not just the right jury and they just don't don't find interesting what we do or valuable what do you do in those times we, that happened uh in 2017 and then we launched crowd funding campaign that was quite successful we managed to gather money for all of the year's rent Wow. And then, and then from that on, yeah, thanks. It was very, it was very nice, and then basically we kind of, yeah. Then we started getting money again, and at least we had that rent covered, so we could like kind of figure something out. It has, I mean, yeah. In this kind of Latvian very tight financial support situation, oftentimes you have to be really kind of creative and sometimes quite fast. With decisions because like also these like funding results that you don't get next year's rent like it came right before christmas wow. so basically you have like few weeks to figure out how you pay january's rent right and everybody's spending their money on christmas stuff so then you're worried about yeah whether or not, yeah yeah 
Yeah, and then uh, the next time we did crowdfunding, it was because I was four minutes late to the to this founding uh, funding uh, <laughs> oh, no. building. <laughs> yeah, I I was waiting for the taxi, and it was like a bad. It was like Friday morning. Everyone was rushing somewhere, and there were traffic jams, and the taxi driver took like the longest route, and like I was just four minutes late <laughs> and they just told me no you know try next year wow that's oh no horrible. that's horrible <laughs> yeah and then like the next time we did it i i was also my myself i was kind of less less confident because it was also of course my fault that i was late so i was kind of less confident that you know i want to ask people money for mistake i did but like there was also no other way but then we gather like money for half of the year at least but kind of the second time was maybe more fun because we tried also to do some parties and like we did cocktail night where we where artists made cocktails and then we um you know there was bidding for for the cocktails and kind of fun stuff like that or like some people were um giving like free um makeup at an event and like all the donations for the makeup went to the gallery and stuff like that so it sounds like you have to get creative in order to see things yeah happen. yeah yeah but it, it also helps that there's uh over the years there we have grown with some you know small community around 47 people who come more often or who have maybe worked at 47 like you know taking care of exhibitions or whatever so also it's kind of the support from from this community is also oftentimes very important especially these like covid times when it was kind of closed and we still managed to do some small private kind of meetings maybe four or five people meeting at the space but uh, at least there was some kind of small process going on i think that's one thing that's been nice about um this time has been being being able to go in a space and be one of the few people there, you know, like having time tickets or something like that, where you feel like you have it all to yourself. Yeah. But actually after, you know, do, um, like when the COVID started, uh, before that, uh, we used to have very busy openings, like so many people coming for openings and sometimes they run late and like, kind of crazy maybe there's some party in the end and etc and of course all that stopped when covid started but when we had these huge openings during the regular working times we didn't have that many people because almost everyone who wanted to see came to the opening night and then you know maybe they wanted to return but they never did but then after covid we kind of noticed that um people who just want to go to see a show you know, either on appointment at any time of the day or during gallery working hours, which are very short. And we kind of really started getting more people just visiting us daily, which was kind of a nice thing that also this kind of daily activity returned because I guess people were really eager to just go to shows and they finally also you know started going to our space maybe <laughs> that's really cool it's like centers the work or the art in a whole different way right instead of the parties 
Yeah. I, I think maybe people really kind of, at least in Latvia, where, you know, this kind of exhibition going, it's not really yet a tradition. There are some attempts to make it into a tradition. There are now these events that kind of once every month, there's like opening Thursday or like, you know, gallery Thursday where galleries are open longer and stuff like that. But there isn't really this kind of culture that, you know, oh, let's go to galleries today because it's, for a while there weren't also that many of them. But now there are a bit more artist run space so spaces open and some some new institutions, some new venues. So hopefully, yeah, this will kind of bring some some kind of more more tradition into you know go, going to shows you know any time of the week so um how are you with advice do people ask you for advice uh, yeah um i began teaching at art academy this year so i definitely get more a lot more questions for advice but yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess sometimes people ask me some advices. I try to help as good as I can, but also I don't know if I'm really good helper. Let's, let's try. Okay, so we got this question. Dear Adelaide and Anna, sometimes I'm so tired of art and the art world. Everything feels meaningless, too much, and superficial. Boring, all, the, all at the same time. What are your best tips to get out of apathy and find purpose? I get this feeling sometimes when I'm scrolling Instagram, but also in real life. Is there something wrong with me? Do you feel the same? Or am I just looking at bad art? Yeah, I was thinking about this one actually a lot. <laughs> I share probably this feeling at times that there's just too much of everything. And yeah, in real life, that depends uh, maybe a little bit also on where you come from. I guess in big cities, you can really get overwhelmed also with real life art. For me, uh, still, it's like um, kind of seeing life in real life feels still kind of revitalizing or kind of re-energizing re experience often. I think I, I agree with that as someone who also doesn't live in a big city. Because I, I recently went to New York and I was like, I can't imagine living here and all the time there's openings, all the time there's shows. You never have enough time to see them all. You know, if I wanted to, I could probably see everything <laughs> in a weekend here if I wanted to. I could just say, like, let me have an art weekend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like with this, like Instagram, the stream of images, the stream of like seeing your you know, mutuals or not even mutuals, just like stream of artists who produce something new, who do new shows in one um, location of the planet and the other location of the planet. It's sometimes really too much. So um, I guess maybe try using Instagram less. Maybe that's my advice. I, I was actually kind of thinking of what you were saying earlier about how people visit during other hours of the exhibition, even though this person says it's also it's also a case for in real life. But like, I think it's very different to go to an opening or some or actually being like walking alone or with a friend 
Uh, yeah, openings can be very overwhelming experience. So yeah, just go to gallery, you know, maybe in unusual times of the day. Um, but I'm also maybe um, I had first this feeling of overwhelming like overwhelming intake of experience i think at first time i had that with music when at some point i just realized there's just too much music being released and then i didn't listen to music for a few years i just listened to radio but like not like i didn't follow anything that's being released actually it's still in a way i don't follow unless it's some friends or acquaintances or you know people i follow for a longer time but what it also kind of taught me is that I maybe I can still follow something that's being released now but if I find really the thing that kind of specifically interests me you know if there's too much then maybe just kind of try to look for more or maybe just like change your you know feed or change your roots just look for like more specific things that maybe you really find interesting and still enchanting because there must be something that you still find interesting maybe it's not maybe it's not contemporary art maybe it's you know some crafts museum or you know looking at vases uh, or like um whatever i absolutely agree yeah tapestry because I think a lot of times people feel like they have to know everything that's going on in the art world and stay up to date and know all the names and all the shows. And for me personally, that could be overwhelming. I prefer to get inspiration from other things in the world, histories, and like you said, these other spaces and collections, uh, tapestries, vases, things like that, that maybe might not be the conventional ways that uh, people think of engaging with creative practices but that can like fuel your own practice and keep you excited yeah but i guess also if you're living in a big city it might really feel kind of overwhelming that you're kind of seeing maybe you know more you you see maybe more similar things or more things repeating or kind of like because that's what happens when you kind of like you know it's the, the process of exhibition making uh, art making and uh, you know if you look at this like kind of like three months of this year maybe there has been a lot of shows and a lot of them have been kind of I don't know similar or maybe something what you call bad art but it's just because you are maybe you know already too close to it and you're kind of the perspective you have on on this whole thing is like already too specific or too you know um you've seen too much of the same thing and then you kind of start to notice you know the same kind of material use or you know whatever kind of repeating patterns or you know repeating uh sentences and press releases and things like that and then you think it's bad art because you know it all looks kind of the same and you don't really like it but yeah i think it's just really about changing maybe just some viewpoints and really looking for art experiences in places where you haven't looked before Mm. i'm also thinking about speed though you know like if you if i go to a show and i'm just really you know like how 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 few seconds you spend with each work 
but then when you're on Instagram, I don't know how long it is, but it's like nothing. Um, so it becomes, yeah. So maybe maybe it could just be good to find like ways of actually spending time, because um, it's like uh, it's always just just not not just Tinder, you know, like yes yeah. no yes no yes no, but like actually like uh, you know like when you get to know the person. <laughs> yeah even that reject you know like it's it's a whole different story if you yeah spend some time even with bad art you know like uh maybe it's something about if at least when I like lose focus or I'm like sort of doing many things superficially like of course then everything feels meaningless like but the moment I manage or have the opportunity to like get deeper into something it automatically becomes more meaningful um because one uh i really wanted to hear your thoughts on was uh i guess more uh, about how we communicate with each other um i would like advice on how to get artists to have more to say to one another than how's your project going as a way to open up space to boast about what they're doing Basically, I want to know what it will take to get artists to be engaged in conversations about ideas without it being linked to a specific project and without ego driving it. Yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> um, I mean, again, I'm coming from province, basically. And I know, I know, of course, a few people who I have conversations with that basically goes along the line so how's your project and then we talk about the project or other projects in line and etc but here for most part i mean i've I've been communicating with artists who actually i mean we do talk about art but oftentimes it this conversation starts with something very unimportant or trivial or funny or just like a joke or kind of like a funny situation that maybe then leads to you know some talk about what we do what ideas we share or you know what's what's kind of on our minds and how it compares to each other or doesn't compare or like how we can communicate you know different ideas etc but oftentimes it just starts with like talking about bullshit for two hours or more. So it sounds like maybe the person who's um, writing this question should maybe just, you know, steer the conversation in a different direction. Talk about more ordinary things and and maybe not feed into this, like, how's your project going thing. Yeah, because, you know, that's like, this kind of, like, it feels like a natural thing, of course, when I go, I don't know, like, to, to some bigger city. Like, of course, that's how the conversations start. And then if it's a short conversation, then that's basically the direction it leads to. But unless, you know, unless you're doing some business together, I mean, you know, working on something together, you don't have to talk about, like, what's your latest project. Like, it's a, it's, you know, it's also a dialogue, so... I've just been thinking a lot about like how how money comes into art and if it's more if more precarious situation one has like a need to sort of communicate work in a different way. This is also something maybe in my head I'm like applying to 
the U.S. or something. It's it's true because I you know like for a while it wasn't on social media at all, and then one of my friends said you need to join Instagram. How are people gonna know about your work? Um, and it's kind of true because people have written me and asked me to teach workshops or do whatever because they see what I, I can do. So it's like these opportunities do come from talking about what you do or showing what you do somehow, which is kind of annoying, but like, I don't know how to, how do you get out of that? You know, how do you, I, I mean, I, for me, I have a lot of friendships where they're, the other person is creative, they're a writer and artist, and we barely ever talk about what we do. We just are friends, you know, like you would be when you were a kid. And then occasionally something will come up like, hey, do you want to hear my story? Or do you want to come see what I'm working on? It's more organic and not forced. And a lot of times that has to do with like, if we don't do the same thing at all, you know, like my friend who's a writer, it's really refreshing for her to come see my work and for me to hear what she has to say and, that, and vice versa. Yeah. Or not even a creative person. I know a guy who works at the warehouse. Um, we, we make music together, though. <laughs> But, like, he spends his days carrying around car parts and listening to dubstep in warehouse. And actually, you know, the, we can talk just about anything, but uh, even art. But, uh, I mean, it, but it's also, you know, like, when you know someone for, like, when you meet someone more often or you know someone for longer, then you kind of can skip out of these like unnecessary parts about updates of your life but even with like people who i haven't seen for long like i don't know i'm for me it's somehow maybe it's again something to do with the anxiety but i really kind of ab avoid talking about these kind of projects or whatever like sometimes sometimes it's interesting you know but it depends I think it's just interesting, like with the it's something about like the content or or it's like the person who's asking the question. I guess maybe the, he or she they they should just ask more idea based questions because like whatever you ask, you can sort of help steering conversation into a specific domain. A lot of the people I know that are always talking about what they're working on, they're not talking to me about ideas. They're talking about the nitty gritty of every little thing they're doing. And then I have to do this. And then I ordered this thing, but I don't know if it's going to come on time. So just like, I'd actually rather have conversations about the ideas behind people's work. And that comes from just, like you said, having more ordinary conversations that evolve into that. But this forced, so, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I think it's also just, I think that's just something in human nature that also artists deal with that you know you spend a lot of time on your work also like you know let's say office you spend your whole days in office and then when you meet with other people from other offices you know you talk about office life most often yeah which is the sad truth. I, uh, when I, for a very short while, I worked at an office of art institution. And then, you know, it was office talk all the time. Whenever we met, you know, we, th there was nothing else we could talk about because we were just like preoccupied with that. And that's also what you have in common. Because when I worked at a cafe, that would happen too. We'd complain about work when we were outside of work. And we'd say, okay, this time we're not going to talk about our boss. This time we're not going to complain. And because we'd have yeah. our, our partners there, other people, and they'd be like, there they go again, like long rants about work. Yeah. So now actually, like, I'm kind of 
also yeah i'm trying to really maybe look at this kind of you know work things kind of like you know like making exhibition or whatever like, and i'm working towards some kind of end result i try to kind of separate it a little bit more from maybe my kind of private time or like the time how i would like to spend it so you know when i have time i rather meet an artist that i can talk about anything instead of like what we do lately and and, and luckily right now in also in art academy teaching my colleagues can still talk also about other things besides work but i feel like it's it's yeah i'm i'm teaching now and of course you know it's kind of bringing some new emotions and some new experiences and just like in general just new kind of sense of what i'm doing so of course uh there are times when i want to talk about that with someone but i try not to i try not to bring it at least home or kind of or like to my friends who don't care about art education um, we're sort of running out of time, but I really want to do like one more question quickly because it sort of relates to this. How do I develop a language for speaking about my art practice? Why do we need to write about our art practice? Shouldn't the artwork speak for itself? As we were talking about talking about projects. Yeah, I just actually last week I had a kind of workshop about writing artist statements in art academy with the um, with painting department which is kind of well basically latvian art academy is kind of in general the texts that students produce are very kind of poor in a way that there are that many references and almost everyone seems to kind of speculate on large issues and kind of you know talk about life, death, sex, whatever, like big topics and then kind of try to figure themselves out how they can solve these big topics instead of looking at someone who has, you know, probably done a much, much better work on defining these large topics. And then um, there's even it's even kind of the other spectrum of this question because it feels like everyone, at least in this workshop that I had, everyone had this feeling that they have to produce something very smart, you know, like some girl was talking about social media and then she pulled out some Guy Debord uh, quote. And, you know, it didn't help. But uh, they all thought that they need some like large, you know, narrative for their work to be valuable. Instead of just talking about, you know, just about anything that just feels important to you. And uh, I think that's also the answer to the question that, you know, in a way, it's just good to just write down for yourself. You can, you know, you can, you can re remain as mysterious as you like with your work. But I think at least for yourself, it's good to just like write down really what you do and kind of just, you know, put it in words put it in some context or you know words sometimes kind of help you also real like figure out like visually or like 
uh, with ideas, like what you can do more with that. I think that's a really good way of looking at it because this person is looking at writing as an annoyance. They just want to make art. And so they're like, why do we need to, what does it say? Why do we need to write about our art practice? But you're putting it forward as a tool that you can use for yourself. You, you're going to have to do it in order to apply for grants and all these other things, but you're saying that it benefits you. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're an artist who can, you know, who can live without applying for grants, residencies or whatever, and you can make work that speaks for itself and you do very little to to explain it. And if, if like, you can continue making work, continue, like doing something with the work or just, you know, like it's, you know, it's not even important to make exhibitions or, you know, show yourself off. Like every now and then you can just like make work and feel happy about it and show it in your living room. But as long as you kind of like feel good doing it without explaining it, like go ahead. But, you know, as we know, we most like often we need these grants or we need these residencies or we need these other things or like, there is, there's just a need for it. And that's just kind of like the very simple reality of how these art mechanisms work. You need to write about your work. But um, there are so many ways also how you can write about your work. And, you know, you don't have to be explanatory. You don't have to dumb down for imaginary reader who is super stupid and cannot understand what you're trying to say. I mean, you can also write about your work, you know, in any way how you want to do it. Often artists get this idea that, you know, you have to really use this international art English. Otherwise, it's, it's not a valid text. But I mean, you know, again, I'm talking from periphery. But I, I mean, I rather enjoy texts where I feel the attitude of the author or like the, the way they use also language or, you know, like choose aspects of what to talk about. I mean, you can, you know, you can talk about your work and all you talk about is maybe just like the smell of paint or like the, like how you made frames for your paintings and how's that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's true that it's also like, it's, it's important for yourself. It really helps to every now and then just kind of write a little statement just for yourself. Maybe yeah, just... I find that really useful as well. And just making like updated statements and they don't just for myself as well. And sometimes like I'll go back to a previous version or I'll get a new one. And, and now we need to end soon because my daughter is crying a lot. But <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I wanted to say like one thing that's been really useful to me sometimes when I think it's difficult to formulate. It's like I've talked to someone else and had them talk about each other's, which can yeah really help see your own stuff through someone else's eyes and sort of just rework that into your own brain or see how it correlates with what you think about your own work. Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say, um, sometimes what I do, because a lot of times, you know, you're just using your old statement and re-editing it to kind of make it fit whatever you're applying for. Um, but sometimes I make myself just entirely write what my work is about without looking at any previous documents, without cutting and pasting. And those sometimes have been the best statements I've ever written because it's just, it's true. You know, I didn't overanalyze. It's just like what I'm interested in, what I do and what I hope for. So I think that's one way 
to practice like really getting to know what your work is about in text yeah yeah because it's like um sometimes reading those statements feels like there's a lot of delusions <laughs> in in very often in the text and i i just you know i'm i think people can can spot honesty and i think honesty really it kind of works but i mean you know by being honest you also don't have to be you know saying too much or like you can be honest also you can honestly uh lie if it's honest to you to lie it's like if it's like honest to your pra practice let's say that you're a liar professional liar who's talking bullshit about your work that's still kind of <laughs> honest <laughs> yeah. that's that's hypothetical uh <laughs> Jo joker artist that um exists somewhere the, uh, this has been uh, super uh both um content and entertainment <laughs> to ask us a question anonymously use the link in our bio on instagram at ask Adelaide and anna and your question might be featured on our next season welcome so much i back to ask Adelaide and anna we are so happy you can join us today Maybe you can mention one thing or another that has changed in your life since the start of the pandemic. I think I'm one of those people for whom generally not so much has changed because I am already working from home and my work is very much focused around reading and writing. Um, but maybe, yeah, I have been traveling much less and I have been quite happy uh, about this uh, on one hand. Um, but then at the same time, I think I have been also been separated from many of my friends because what comes with this mobile lifestyle is also the fact that in whichever city you are, the majority of friends are somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, that has been a change that I have been more local. Most of my friends that I consider my close friends don't live where I live. And I don't know many people where I live because I moved here during the pandemic. I have a very rich life online. <laughs> yeah, but also, also, in my case, I think I like for a long time it was like this that I didn't keep in touch that frequently uh, with many people who would live elsewhere, and I was waiting for this time uh, when I actually travel or my friends travel and we meet in person. Uh, but now I started having during this Corona time when um, and especially the lockdowns when it didn't somehow matter whether you speak to someone who lives in the same city or lives uh, further away. So I started keeping in touch regularly with those um, faraway friends. And that has actually added quite a lot to uh, my life quality. And sometimes I'm asking, why didn't I do it uh, before? But I think I've always had this, like many other people I feel as well, I have had this, made this attempt to focus on the city where I am um and not be online all the time mm -hmm. uh, but now now i have started to do that, that my social life and for people who are listening can you can you tell us where you are and what you do i am in Tallinn in estonia i am an art worker with a fairly broad profile um i am an independent freelance art worker and i do different kinds of things including writing teaching both in formal education settings and those outside of them. Uh, I organize cultural events. I do political organizing. 
I do occasional exhibition curating. And yes, one of the issues that I have done quite a lot over the past 10 years or so is advocacy work around questions relating to precarious labor in the art field. We find your work so relevant and important. I'm really interested in these topics because in the U.S., um, it's, you know, we don't have uh, many artist unions. There have been uh, people organizing, professors will organize at a university and create a union to fight for the rights of tenure track, uh, not non-tenure track workers, so the adjunct um, faculty who just are given a contract every semester and they don't have health insurance that comes with it and other rights that full-time employees have. And then um, also in terms of people fighting at museums, I've worked at museums and, you know, there are people who in different museums in the U.S. are starting to uh, form unions. So it's all interesting to me, but I don't have a lot of experience with it because I also am someone who doesn't live in, in many places for a long time. So I don't have that kind of like deep connection to a place. And in my mind, I'm always not going to be somewhere for that long. So then that determines like how I, it's kind of not a good thing because I behave as if I'm not going to be there for a long time. One thing that has changed is that I realized how much I enjoy my own company. I have days where I, I realize I'm just smiling a lot, but I'm by myself and I'm just having a lot of fun doing all the things that I like to do. And I do like being around other people too, but sometimes I find it exhausting. So I've really learned to appreciate being by myself. Are you ready, Irie? Can I start and read the, one of the questions? Sure. Yeah. Let's do okay. it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Dear Ask Adlai and Anna, I'm going to have a solo show at an institution soon. I make video installations and they are generally very time consuming and expensive to produce. The museum has few resources and they are very resistant to give me any support monetarily. They won't pay an artist fee, etc. They have a budget to hire a third-party art installer, so I've tried workarounds like asking if they would hire me as the installer of my own work, just so I could get paid for the week I am installing it. And they say no, on principle. It's like they have a problem with the idea of paying an artist for anything. They expect me to produce my own funding from my uh, collectors, which I don't really have, because I make conceptual video installations in a city where there's no market for that. Without quitting the show, uh, and then in brackets, I've already cut things out of the show and I've pared it down, or crowdfunding my own fee. What do you think I should do? I don't think there are many options in this situation. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit tough. I actually had a similar situation where a curator contacted me and asked me, I had made a video with a poet maybe like five years ago, and they asked me if they could show the video. They were really excited about it, and they had programming that was, you know, related, and they were going to have university students come and watch it and all this stuff. And then, so I wrote back and said, oh, that's wonderful. Um, and there's, a, there's something called the wage calculator that we have here in the U.S. And so I said, well, here's a link to the wage calculator. Um, I'd be, you know, interested to know what the, what the a fee, artist fee will be because I need to let the poet know. Because I had told him, like, they want to show our video, and I want to make sure we get paid. And so after I sent that email, they wrote me back, oh, well, we, we can't show a video because there's issues with noise contamination um, going from one room to another, and we just don't have the facilities to show a video. And, you know, I said, oh, I'm comfortable with, you know, headphones. People can use headphones, but not really particular about the way people experience it. And then they were like, oh, no, we'll, we'll have to get in touch with you some other time, which clearly was, we don't want to pay you. In my case, just didn't happen. 
I'm also a big advocate of saying no and, and from this question because the condition of this question is that no is not an option. It would be actually interesting to know why not. But in the situation when no um, is not an option, then I think the only only option still to be considered is maybe the question whether some extra funds can be found, whether the artist uh, would have time to do um, some fundraising or to um, convince the institution to apply for some extra funds. But it also seems from this question that the time is actually short and sometimes these extra funds are simply not available. Then another thing still to do is to try to negotiate with the art institution because I think there is, we heard from uh, from the formulation that question that the artist has already tried to do that without success. And it seems to be a principal issue uh, from the side of the museum. That, but I think in that situation, I'm really that advocate of saying no. Right. You're not, it's not like you're losing money at this point. <laughs> you know, they're not paying you anyway. So if you say no, they're actually in a worse position because now they have to fill a gap that they were... They were expecting to have an installation. Uh, despite of not being really able to give good advice, um, I think this question actually reminds me of some other reoccurring situations that I hear very often from colleagues. Also the story that you were telling, asking for a fee and then the institution finds some kind of excuse not to uh, continue the cooperation with you. For me, an interesting question is also the like who is in the position to say no? Who can afford to say no? Because what I hear very often, as an advocate uh, of the no, what I hear very often from artists, for example, in such a small location like uh, Thailand or maybe Estonia in general, um, is that artists are saying, but I cannot afford to say no because when I say no, then I don't have a career as an artist. You know, very often... Um, they would also tell me these bigger institutions, they don't invite me. So very often I also find myself in a situation where I apply. There are some some uh, exhibition spaces where there is an open call, where the artist needs to apply to organize their own exhibition. And then all the expenses fall on, on, on them and, uh, and the exhibition space actually offers very little support. And this is a conversation that I also um, hear very much uh, in relation to this question of whether to say no uh, to um, precarious working conditions or unpaid work. But then on the other hand, there is also this question of who can say yes, who can afford to say yes to unpaid work, because that also needs uh, some kind of backup, no? that uh, you need to be mm -hmm. able to afford to perform uh, this unpaid work. Uh, mm -hmm. by having some sort of income uh, from then other sources. And so it's a kind of a, it can also be a bit of a tricky question. Definitely. But what are your experiences with saying no? Um, yeah, I think it is an interesting question, like who can afford to say no? And I have afforded to say no sometimes. And then actually when your follow-up question is like, who can afford to say yes? So you need some sort of security, as you see, like some sort of, uh, income also to be able to say yes and I guess for for many questions I guess I uh, some sort of advice or reflection I have on how to deal with it is like talk to other people who have worked with the same institution then maybe you can get some ideas of how to for, get money for installing for example like is there another way around it like how people worked in the past to help you negotiate because I find it weird that they say that there's like a principle on not paying the artist if they would hire him as the installer. Yeah, that means they don't, they're never paying anyone. Like, how do they think this works? How do they think people live? No, but they, like, they, have, they have a budget to hire a third-party art installer. 
that that's the budget they do have but they they won't pay that to the artist yeah so it's a question of of the priorities that the art institution sets and i think what you say Anna, I um, agree to that very much, is that in the situation where a, an artist as an individual has tried to negotiate with an institution and fails. But the, but the issue at stake is not the dispute um, over um, how to, um, I don't know, a, a dispute over some kind of minor issue within the budget, no? That um, some initial agreements were made, but then the production of the work demands a bit more. And then you start negotiating and don't find a compromise. I think the question of, of payment, whether the institution pays uh, a fee to the artist is a principal issue. And that's not like an individual conflict between one artist and the institution. So so I would I would also say it would be very wise to seek the support of other artists who cooperate with this uh, institution mm -hmm. and to address the institution collectively and say, hey, you know, this is not okay you need to reconsider uh, your uh, priorities, which you also uh, follow in the next uh, situations where you apply for funding, where you budget uh, your work, that you need to prioritize uh, the fee of the artists as part of your practice. And that probably could be more successful when it's done collectively. And I would suggest going forward for this artist to, you know, when they first approach you and ask if you want to participate, to be like, oh, this sounds like a wonderful opportunity. You know, please take a look at this link from Wage and and let me know what my artist fee will be. Like, just make it as if that's how it is. And when they, if they actually click on the link, they'll see the names of institutions that they recognize and how much those institutions are paying people to have a solo show or to make an installation or to do a performance. And it's just like a way of establishing that these people are getting paid to do these things. Um, when reading this, at which point in time was money discussed in this particular uh, collaboration? Because um, it remains a little bit open from the way that this question is formulated. And, and somehow when, when reading it, uh, my first, uh, somehow in my imagination, I had the feeling that it, the money was something that came up later. And somehow I get this feeling. It may be wrong, uh, but it, it, it also brought to my mind how important it is to keep repeating that. The talking about money, negotiating about financial conditions uh, and payment uh, is something that is completely normal to do in the beginning of a work relationship. And very often in the art context, it is not done. Um, it is, there is no protocol how to talk about money uh, in the art context. And, and um, it is sometimes I find it hard to believe myself how much or how many of such stories I hear where the artist agrees uh, to collaborate with an institution and does not ask about the money and the institution does not say. Um, and mm. then there is also an element of, of some kind of shyness or fear or, or this money is a little bit of a taboo theme that you don't know really when is the right time to speak about it. And and I often also hear from artists that they kind of, then they, then they wait. Uh, they don't address it by themselves because they, they wait until the institution does it. And, and sometimes it can lead to a situation that, you're, that the exhibition is being opened already. Oh, no. And everything has been done. Every detail has been discussed in nuance. And then the money question about payment never came up. And then the artist finally takes the courage together and asks, and then hears, but no, sorry, um, we have no budget for, unfortunately, our limited resources don't allow to pay. 
uh, uh, to the artist, and, oh. and and then you start wondering, but where does this glossy catalog come from, or or why was it possible to cover my travel expenses? So it is a, a question of priorities inside institutions as well. But but somehow mm. I think what I would like to repeat so much is that to collaborate with an art institution is a work relation like any other, and it is completely normal to negotiate working conditions at the beginning of a work relation, and these working mm. conditions include. The question of payment, but also other details such as this, like but, division of labor, who is doing that, but, uh, who is taking what responsibility, uh, time frames, and so on. Say that this question, or you, we have, we we would have gotten to this person earlier in the process, or in in what way do you think if the if the institution never addresses money, how and when should one do it? I think that's uh, that's something. One should not expect the art institution to do it. I think it is completely okay to do it by yourself at the beginning of, like especially when somebody approaches you and asks, would you be potentially interested in collaborating under such and such circumstances when the institution, I don't know, a curator takes interest in a specific work, then it can be the first step or the second step after you have expressed your interest to collaborate uh, to say, hey, Let's also discuss um, the financial aspect of it. So it is a, oh, not only the question about finances. Usually, is not only the question about the pay, whether the artists get paid, but also um, sometimes it is about production costs. Even existing works actually sometimes need to be produced again. Um, it is a question about travel costs, if necessary. It is a question about who installs the work, whether the artist needs to be present. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a question about what kind of extra activities the artist needs to, because sometimes, you know, there is a catalog for which you need to deliver material, sometimes there is not. Sometimes you are expected to speak to the press uh, when the exhibition has been opened. Sometimes you are expected to be part of these um, sort of programs, public programs, to um, give an artist talk or to take part in a panel talk to journalists, uh, give a guided tour. I mean, there are so many nuances uh, that come. And these are sort of typical activities that, that come with an exhibition. Um, mm-hmm. So all these things are uh, should be negotiated uh, at, at the start. Then when you when you start discussing these little, these different aspects, uh, then, then what also t- starts taking shape is the issue of how much work uh, is being expected from the artist. According to that, how much work is, is expected from the artist, the payment should also correlate with that. Um, in the context where I am active, we are developing a different model that is that is based more on, on the actual time that one or the other specific work relation demands. But if there is no other, I mean, th- this is also up, up for negotiation and for like in some contexts there are maybe these kinds of proposals for or tariffs or or agreements for fee schedules that are supported by bigger artist unions and so on, then you can refer to them. I mean, there are many possibilities of how to negotiate over the payment. Mm-hmm. The wage model is one of them. Uh, and also based on the past too, because even for this podcast, we've been able to ask for certain amounts based on you know what the National Museum of Norway paid us to do a season. So then if the institution can't pay that much, then we say, okay, we'll do less episodes. You know, there's, so there's ways of negotiating to, to have a project fit within the budget of the institution or the project. But I think sometimes as artists, we get so excited about an opportunity that we don't ask all those important questions. 
Yeah, I think this is a, this is an issue very much um, is that what I was also mentioning earlier is this feeling that I, I need to have this visibility and, and perhaps even more so for artists who are um, at the beginning, a young, emerging, not established yet, and they might feel that I need this opportunity to exhibit and, um, and I need this visibility. And this is also the argument with which some art institutions operate. We could hear it also from this particular case, uh, from this question, because uh, there was this reference to the museum saying that the exhibition will give the artist a chance to come in contact with their collectors mm-hmm. or with the market. No, but, but this is a completely different logic where it's interesting that in this example, it's a museum that is saying it, not some kind of gallery. But basically the, the idea is that we mm-hmm. are... We are offering a service for you as an artist. We exhibit your work and then the audiences come and see it and among them potential buyers. So we are kind of offering you contact with your market. So therefore we are not uh, supposedly responsible for paying for your work. And I think it's a different kind of, it's just a very different kind of logic of how I understand museums and public art institutions and them as employers. It sounds to me like this museum maybe works with bigger name artists and they who have collectors and maybe those collectors sponsor the exhibitions. And I think one of the strategies that I've been trying to use, because like you said, institutions aren't mentioning how much they're going to pay and things like this. I think anyone who's listening to this, who is commissioning an artist or organizing an exhibition, in, your, in that first email, when you write the person, you need to have something, mention finances, even if you don't put a number, just mention that they're going to get paid. Because I hate when I have to do this back and forth of the way I do it is I say, oh, I'd love to learn more about this opportunity. For instance, what are the dates that it might happen? What is the artist fee? I just throw it in there with other questions. And just to establish from the start that I expect there to be some kind of payment. This is also a very good point. I think it's a it's a good institutional practice to address this and mm-hmm. not to leave it up to the artist and to address this from the start. Because there have been times where I've, you know, like hesitated to reply to an email or just really felt I just it gives me a bad feeling when someone asks me to do something and then it's clearly something I should be paid for and they don't mention the payment and I have to bring it up. I don't it makes me feel bad about the offer but i would also it's it's true i think it would be it it is good institutional practice to mention uh, the question of payment uh, from start and from the side of of the uh, employer but then what i would also like to underline very much that uh, what you were saying that it makes you feel bad i mean it makes you skeptical on one hand um, maybe a bit mistrustful about this cooperation where important things are not being addressed but then at the same time what i would really like to underline is that don't feel bad about asking uh, if the other side is not doing it just ask it is don't feel you know there is no shame in it it's not improper indecent it is completely okay to do that it's not only okay it's really good especially for for your like uh, peers like for everyone for the artist community Exactly. Because then the, you know, there's going to be another person that comes after you and they're going to have to think like, is this artist, you know, they're gonna have to start thinking about, oh, we got to pay people because people keep bringing this up. Maybe we should move on to the next question. Do you want to read Adelaide? Sure. Okay. Dear Adelaide and Anna, this question is about the closeness slash incestuousness of the art world and how much, sorry, let me start again. This is a question about the closeness slash incestuousness of the art world and how that makes it hard for change to happen. When a sexual harassment complaint was mishandled at my place of work, I went down all the regular routes to make this right, talking to the director, 
then contacting the board, getting advice from organizations that can help, getting legal advice, and finally, after none of those steps being taken seriously by the organization, I resigned, as I did not feel it was a safe place to work. The organization broke a series of employment and discrimination laws, and my main aim was that they would get educated on their obligations as employers and change their way of working so that they do not do this in the future. This is a problem also in the art world, where many organizations are just two or three people, and the employers aren't actually aware of their legal obligations. As none of the routes I have taken so far for this were taken seriously, my next course of action would be to report the case to the Labor Inspection Authority or make a public statement, both of which I would hope both of which I hope would force them to take action and may encourage other organizations to take the law seriously. But the art industry is, is a small one, and I'm also scared about how this would affect my future work. Secondly, I don't know if I have the emotional energy to do that. I'd like to hear your advice on this. This is a bigger problem about the closeness and through that unprofessionalism of the art world. Are there any other courses of action you think we can take as individuals? I think here now is the example where... Um again, where the, an individual has, has really uh, explored all possible paths. Mm -hmm. So that the only one that is left is the collective action, is to find support. And find support either in the form of, of some existing organizations uh, that are specialized in addressing one or the other like specific issue, uh, or then finding support among peers, uh, other artists or other colleagues in more generally in order to um, publicly or at least if even if not publicly then at least collectively address uh, one institution and ask them to change their practices. And I think this fear the person has about um, losing out on future work I think what might happen is that might actually happen with certain institutions, but those might be the ones that you would have problems with in the first place. So there are going to be people that come out that want to support you specifically because you spoke out about this. And, you know, maybe there's, there's exhibitions related to this topic and then you would become someone that everyone would think of um, for this because you've been a public voice against this kind of behavior. So I think you you might lose some opportunities, but you also might get some. You might end up being on panels. You might, I mean, and maybe you don't want that to be the focus of your, of your work. So that's another issue. But I think good can come out of it as well as bad. Yeah, I also I agree with that very much, um, and I also wanted to comment on that aspect of fear um, that was mentioned in this question because um, that's also something that I hear a lot. I, I hear artists, um, or not only artists, but also other people working in the art sector and, or in the cultural sector more general, or even beyond, uh, there is this fear that if I, if I, you know, for example, if I ask for payment, then I'm considered to be someone who is difficult or demanding. If I address uh, some issues, um, then I will be frowned upon. If I go, um, if I criticize, um, then people get uh, offended. And and what is true in a way in the art field that uh, that when somebody does get offended, then then this um, uh, response to that is very often I will never work with that person again. So I will um, not offer uh, a paid job opportunity for them uh, or something like that. So this fear is very present. But what you were saying, Adelaide, I support very much because I think every conflict might produce enemies, but it also produces supporters. And and also, you know, to stop uh, uh, the work relation with an institution at risk 
knowing that this institution is exploitative uh, or or um, is ignorant, uh, then what kind of risk is it in the first place? Then at the same time, I have to say that from my own experience as someone who has been addressing um, the issue of precarious labor now for quite some time, and, and I have different strategies in my work, and sometimes also criticizing um, art institutions in a more general way, sometimes also naming them um, and, and addressing certain specific situations. Um, I don't get the impression that, um, that I have been shut out. So the fact that it's a sexual harassment complaint and the person who wrote this also uh, mentions that um, that they consider either going to the labor inspection authority or to make a public statement, especially if it goes publicly, and maybe even more so if it's a she, uh, or uh, not a him at least, would uh, could cause um, public harassment. And I think much of the question is also because because it ends somehow here with uh, saying that. They have an idea of how they could move on, such as like a public statement or, or report the case. Um, so so it's like the the possible future plans are there, but they mentioned that they don't know if they have the emotional energy to do that. Yeah, one of the things I at least think of is that you you can at least cannot do it alone. You know, like yeah, you have to team up with someone. And also with a lot of cases like this you're not the only person that's happened to, you know, like think about all the actresses that came out when, uh, you know, in the Me Too movement, like, yeah, that happened to me too. And so I think you can find community by speaking out about this and then you have more power and less individual pressure and stress. Um, I'm also thinking, because I mentioned that they have been in touch with um, organizations uh, that can help. Is it somehow possible to team up with an organization to... <clears throat> as the case is reported or a public statement so it doesn't have to come from you directly yeah i just know about these like things that has to do with uh, harassment and discrimination like things that really can stir sort of you know like the personal uh, social media shit you need to sort of yeah in the best way possible protect yourself mm, i think yeah when i i mean in those situations where it um uh, connected to sexual harassment, I think this is a there. It is particularly hard uh, to um, come publicly out uh, for the person who is directly affected by it. No, there, there is something completely else at stake when it comes about the question the institution refuses to pay me. So in that case, I think this collective action, um, um, yeah, it's really uh, worth thinking about in which frame. It happens. I don't know. I somehow got the impression from uh, from the way that this question was formulated that maybe it could also be somebody who has been observing uh, mm. inside an institution sexual harassment happening and has been trying to. But maybe I got it wrong. I somehow uh, like for me these would be then two different uh, situations. What would distinguish the two different kinds of sort of plan of action or advice you would give whether it's like a person who has been affected or it's sort of the person yeah who observes it in the workplace i think for the person who has been affected uh, uh by by sexual harassment to go into that into uh, in public comes with the risk of this re-victimization no that you become 
the object uh, of uh, critique. Uh, there is this question of uh, whether you're being believed or not. Uh, I don't know, in the Estonian context, this happens a lot. So if you're somebody who is an observer, um, then you are in the position to address some kind of structural issues inside an institution. Um, so I think it's a, it's a different subject, but different, and there are different things that are at risk. I was going to say that this reminds me of this movie I saw, uh, The Assistant, and it can it shows how you know you can you can have these ideas in your head of how institutions are supposed to behave. For example, human resources. A lot of people think human resources department in a company is there to help you, but they're really there to protect the business. Um, so you have to keep in mind like there's systems at least in the U.S. that have been set up to protect the business that are have this false um, image as there to help the employees. And so in that film, the it's not something that's directly happening to the protagonist, but she's observing an abusive environment in terms of sexual harassment and, um, you know, just kind of like exchanging, like people who will have sex with the with her boss are given opportunities and things like that. And so she goes to Human Resources to report it. And they're basically like, do you like your job? Do you want to still be working in this industry? Why are you causing problems for yourself? And so, like you said, it can turn into a personal attack on, on the person who's re who's reporting it, and that can be totally unexpected because you're like, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing this for other people, I'm trying to help, I'm trying to change the culture of this place, and there's systems in place to protect abusers. If you decide to move on, if the, the person decides to move on, uh, I think it's just really important to sort of uh, keep in touch with those support structures to find ways like not to be alone. But I also wanted to come back maybe to this question about the emotional energy. Maybe to speak on a, not specifically about uh, this example, but also a little bit more in general terms. I think institutions are very resilient uh, to change and it is, um, it is very hard uh, to change them and they won't change un unless we ask them to. Um, so this question of, uh, of whether I have the energy uh, to address um, one or the other uh, problematic situation, I hear that quite often as well. Um, and again, I think it's it's a completely, um, I mean, these situations are not comparable if somebody has gone through a traumatic experience, and for example, sexual abuse, no? and then uh, considers whether they find the energy to go forward uh, with addressing this issue, despite um, failing in it uh, many times, but um, in situations where that are maybe less traumatic, I would really somehow also insist that it's us who need to do this work, even if we don't want to. These <laughs> institutions, they don't say. change unless we, yeah. unless we push them. Um, and even taking that first step forward means that there is hopefully a record that someone has reported this at that institution. And then it's possible to see a pattern emerge if someone is consistently abusive and people are reporting it. Because if you don't report it, then it's like, oh, well, we've never heard any complaints of this kind before about this person. Everybody loves so-and-so. There's no way he would do that, you know? If you have five people come forward at different times and say, this is what happened to me, it becomes, the institution has to recognize that it has a problem. So even though you might not see the change in your own time working somewhere, it can definitely, like this person said, you know, they want it, they want them to change. Um, it can lead to change in the future, and hopefully, it just isn't take decades or something. 
this letter or the, this text sort of ends with a, a question like are there any other courses of action you think we can take as individuals because I think the person really has like done <laughs> so many things and and just know in, in when it comes to like the emotional energy as well like um you can't fight all the time there's a little sort of nuance of meaning there is to do things individually does not as an individual does not mean to do them alone no as an individual you can also seek the support of others mm-hmm. because from this wow. example i get the impression that that uh, what this person has done until now are the things that they could do alone uh, i think it's been really enlightening to have you with us with all of, yeah with your experience and knowledge of working with these things Season four of Ask Adelaide and Anna was commissioned for a structure and vision for changing circumstances, a project curated by Maya Rudowska in collaboration with Bestfall Art Center and Pars Nola. Thanks to Annabelle Shin for creating the sounds we use in these jingles. Thanks for listening.